I'm Andrew. Welcome to Drinking with Freelancers. I started this podcast because in my work, I meet a lot of other amazing freelancers and entrepreneurs who have shared cool experiences, stories, and advice, often over a drink, be that a cup of coffee or a beer. And I want to help share these moments with all of you. This is episode four, and today I have the joy of being joined by Emma Cownley. Hello. How's it going today? To be honest, it's not been a great day since you asked. How's it going with um, you? My day's not been too bad. And uh, you're actually the, the first person that I've ever interviewed from outside of Canada. So first time I've had to, uh, so no for, way, first time really? I've had to accommodate uh, a time zone for doing a recording. So yes, thank you very much for being oh, wow. here. Yeah. I very much enjoyed the fact I got to be the first most awkward guest. I take great pleasure in that. Don't take it away from me with your Canadian politeness. Don't tell me it's not a problem. Let me have it. Uh, what are you drinking today? I am drinking Ardbeg. It's a 10-year single malt Isla whiskey. And it's probably my most favorite whiskey, closely followed by Lafroy. One of the first scotches that I remember trying was a sip of my uncle's bottle of Ardbeg Supernova exactly what you imagine an Isla whiskey is with like that peatiness. It is just like the the archetypal like peaty scotch. It's like drinking a bonfire, isn't it? I'm exceedingly happy that I am speaking with another Isla fan. Yeah, well, I always thought I hated whiskey just because I'd only ever had, you know, bells or whatever, you know, when I was a student and you need to get drunk quickly, just shit like that. And then I took my husband on a whiskey tasting experience for his 30th birthday. We went to stay in Edinburgh for the weekend. I was tasting all these whiskeys and I was like, yeah, I knew it. They're all rank. And then we got to the Islas and I was like, wait a minute. I did not know that whiskey could taste like this. Count me in. I don't think that there's another kind of whiskey anywhere that tastes quite the way that Isla does. No, although I find that the Japanese ones have their own quite distinct taste that is unlike other whiskies I've had. Well, I haven't had that many of them. When I was in Japan, I had some, but I was more interested in other things in Japan, so I wasn't paying massive attention. I don't think I knew that you'd been to Japan. Look at the state of me, Andrew. Of course I've been to Japan. <laughs> I look like an anime cartoon. I've definitely been to Japan. Yeah, well, now you're going to force me to put a picture of you in the description for this podcast episode so that people have uh, reference. Yeah. Your, your appearance harkens more back to the punk rocker era. Oh, that's very kind of you. You're quite big into music because that's a big part of the stuff that you write, isn't it? Yes, that's true. I think I'm one of these people that thinks if you can monetize your hobby without destroying your love of it, do it. My knowledge of niche music is so, as I say, niche that if I can actually put it to work, I'll do that. So I guess for everybody, although you're a fair bit more internet famous than I am, Would you like to explain what it is that you do? 
I'm a B2C copywriter and blogger, and I focus mainly on fashion, lifestyle, beauty, and music, which turns out not that profitable, but I have a really good time. So I guess that's all that counts. You've told me so many interesting stories about clients that you've worked with and just your interactions with people, famous musicians, and, and just clients that you've worked with in magazines. So for me, it was a, a no brainer. It's like, of course, I wanted to have Emma on the podcast so that she can share more of these stories. Oh, that's very kind. I don't I think I actually know, but like, how long have you been working as a copywriter? Working as a copywriter, technically, I think it would have started in 2011. I was actually going into a customer service role for an e-commerce business, but they were really, really small, family run. And when I went to the interview, I started to get really excited when they said, you know, would you write product descriptions for our website or whatever? And I was like, oh my God, writing? Yeah, I'll write the website. And what about a blog? And have you thought about a newsletter? And I was sure I just graduated from a master's in creative and professional writing. So as part of that master's, they had us set up an online portfolio and they'd kind of shown us how to lay it out and code it ourselves and whatnot. So I had loads of samples on there of assignments I'd done and, and things like that. I'd written an article on why Twilight is such a bad influence on young girls. And I'd interviewed uh, an American psychologist from Psychology Today and got her to kind of tell me her piece on it. And I'd written an article on um, Kevin Smith he just at that time made a horror film called Red State and I'd been to the uh, Brixton cinema to see him do a Q&A and talk through the film and it was kind of a premiere screening so I kind of treated that like an interview and I put that on there as well and um, my boss it turned out got really really excited about the potential for having a blog and social media and all that lot so he brought me on and that was kind of like the sweetener for me because the customer service role was absolute garbage. I hated it. I don't like conflict. I don't like stress. I don't like pressure. This boss I had would not give anything away for free. Even if the customer sent an image of something broken or there was no tracking and the customer could prove it hadn't arrived, he still would not give things up. So I spent my whole day fighting with people I really, I dreaded it. I felt sick before work every day, but every so often he'd kind of sprinkle in a copy job, like, oh, why don't you set up a social media account and maybe go in and you can do this. And gradually I kind of got more hungry for it and I got more sick of the job. And at that point I kind of went off to do a full-time copywriting job because I didn't actually know you could do it as a career until I kind of started to get more into it. So long story, long 2011, maybe started copywriting and I stayed in-house with various uh, companies for about six years before I went freelance. But you clearly had a plan to do a bit of writing. It, like you said, you had a ma you did a master's in creative writing. Yeah, uh, that's only because I didn't know what to do. I'd, I graduated into the recession in 2008, 2009, I think. I had an English degree and absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I was applying, I applied to be a librarian and they fucking turned me down. I applied to be an archivist at something. So I was like, I just want to work, you know, with books in and around that kind of literary scene, you know, dark academia, all that lot. I was like, oh, I'll be great. Could not get hired for love nor money. Ended up working in Starbucks. But I knew a couple of journalists at a sci-fi magazine that I was, uh, I was subscribed to. It was called Sci-Fi Now. Uh, they went, they stopped 
print, I think last year, they're only online at this point. But back then, you know, I was big into it. I was on the forum. I was like a key player on the forum and I'd go to the meetups in Birmingham. So I was asking the journalist, how did you get into this week gig? You get paid to write about films all day long. How the fuck did you get to do that? And uh, one of the journalists, James Rundle, I think he works for the Financial Times now or something like that. He basically told me that everything that he'd done. So I was like, right, I'm going to do that. So I went back to my university after saving up four grand working at Starbucks to pay for this master's. And we basically just did everything. We did poetry, we did fiction, including things like children's literature. We had lecturers like Faye Weldon and um, Toby Young. And one of my favorite lecturers, his name's Max, I can't remember his name now, I've got one of his books, wait, Max Kinnings. He um, wrote a bunch of horror comedy books and I was like, this guy is the fucking shit. Like, yes, I wanna be him. So went through, studied all sorts of disciplines, screenwriting, just everything. Came out the other side like, right, I kind of know that you can do this as a job. It's just a matter of getting your foot in the door. So I started looking for ways to infiltrate. I did like the idea of journalism, but by the time I graduated, I had a journalism module and we kind of, our teacher, Danusha Keane, who I think writes for the Financial Times as well, was telling us how to pitch, how to interview properly, how to structure an article. And I just left that module with great grades, but absolutely no practical know-how. I was like, I'll never be able to do this. You have to be really hungry, really ambitious, like see an opportunity and have the guts to really like go in to the top publications and, you know, have the balls to seize it and be like, let me write this piece. I can deliver it to you by the end of the day, you know, couldn't do it. I've got there in the end. It's a slow journey. So that, that's that's where you started. And then at some point you went in-house and then you decided to go freelance? Yeah, I was very much in love with the company I worked at. Uh, they were a really kooky online print company. And I was the only copywriter, the only copywriter they'd, they ever had. And I was the only one there for four years. So everything was my way. And because it was so small and close-knit, the, the company culture was really great. We had so much fun. But I could see that there was nowhere else for me to go. I, I couldn't get any higher. I was getting comfortable and lazy. And obviously, when I first went into that company, they owned a portfolio of brands. So I would be working for Good Print and Printed.com. And also they had a wrapping paper business, like a, it was kind of like Instagram wrapping paper where you would upload a bunch of your photos and arrange it on wrapping paper. So I was writing for that brand as well. So I was across lots of different tone of voice, kind of flexing my skills and really keeping that sharp. And then as I progressed over the four years working there, gradually those other companies dropped off um, for various reasons. And I was just writing for the one. And I was like, if I don't get into a role where I can use those skills, I'll just lose them. And at the time I had some quite bad mental and physical health problems as well. And the environment that I was in, I, I don't feel like I could have got help safely. I wanted the privacy to almost completely shatter and put myself back together in my own time rather than have it be like a public display, which was where it was heading. It, I was on a road to light disaster. And so all of those reasons together, I just thought like, 
the kind of skills I needed to learn as well. I needed to learn to believe in myself and sort myself out and be accountable to myself. And rather than hiding behind the skirts of a manager and allowing them to lead me, which is so comfortable for me. It's so comforting to have someone pat you on the head and let you know you've done a good job and say like, you can move to here now, or like, you can do this. I'm like, oh yeah, thanks. Like, I don't have to think, I'll just do the words. It's nice and cushy. And I, for my own mental health and personal development, I needed to get a bit more uncomfortable and get achievements for myself, things I wanted to do because I wanted to do it and all, all that kind of stuff that it was trial by fire. I had to throw myself in and just do it. So one day you decided, I'm out. This was the job when it started, but it's become a lot more monotonous. Yeah. And also when I started, I was relatively new to copywriting as an art form full time. I had kind of been straddling copywriting and customer service. So I had a lot to learn over those four years. And then when I got to the end of it, I didn't feel that there was anything more that they could teach me because the things I was learning was from the marketing team, the product team, how, what are the benefits? How do you work those in? What do people care about? How do you structure things? When to send things out? And you, just things like that, that you've kind of absorbed through osmosis from people who are more skilled than you in other areas. And it makes you a better commercial writer. And then when you've taken all you can from them, really you have to recognize that and push yourself to go a bit further. Yeah, so you, you you packed up or like, was there a, I'm, I'm going this way, I'm, I'm doing this freelance thing and I know I can do it. I love the way that you talk about it, like, as so though me leaving is like the end of the breakfast club and I'm kind of going out with two fists in the air, like, bow, bow, hey, 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 <laughs> hey. In my mind, that's how it went down. I'll tell you what it was, actually. It, it had been building up for a long time, but I'm one of these people that's remarkably good at ignoring obvious facts until it becomes, you know, unbearably obvious and then I have to do something. My friend Victoria got fired. She was so, so good. She did the blog, the social media and the PR and stuff, and they fired her. And um, she was incredible at her job. And I couldn't figure out why she'd been fired. And I was so angry. I was like, do you know what? No, that's it now. You've made this happen. I'm off ski. And there you go. That's seems that feels very end of breakfast club. Yeah, walk across the football pitch in my trench coat, both arms raised to the sky in triumph. That's really cool. So yeah, I guess I'm really curious as to how you got into your specific niche that you are in that you're in today. Well. I started off as a generalist because I just wanted the money. I didn't care. I'd written for one industry only and I wanted to experience all that there was to kind of experience. And as somebody that is, I'm a natural academic. I love academia, essays, um, research, all that good stuff. So when I started getting more corporate jobs and white papers and stuff, I was like, hell yeah, this is like what, this is like putting on a comfy old jumper. Do you know what I mean? Ac academic talk. I loved it. And then I kind of got two years in and I was like, actually, I'm working on a lot of stuff I don't care about and I don't really like. And initially I had said to myself that if I could earn the same as I was getting in-house, but be freelance, 
I would be happy. If I could just get clients and earn money, that would be enough for me, I'd be happy. But then two years down the line, I'd exceeded my wildest dreams of what I could have earned and achieved. And I was like, right, well now I need to adjust the goalposts. How, what would make me happy? What does success look like now that I'm two years in? And it kind of came down to me working on stuff that really makes me excited. So I kind of looked at my list of clients and my list of jobs I've done kind of over the past 12 months and looked at which were the ones that were most exciting, which were the clients that I got excited by when they popped into my inbox and the jobs they gave me, which ones of those really gave me tingles and kind of narrowed it down to the field that I'm in right now. So I started work kind of business development, trying to get a couple more of these and it's been really slow. Uh, I didn't realize how long it would take reposition and start to get traction especially then you know shortly after that pandemic happens and nobody in lifestyle is uh hiring anyone it was badly timed luckily i had journalism i just went straight to um, my contact that i had and was like i've got this idea and this idea and this idea and they were like great we'll take all of them earning a pittance but at least i'm working i'm excited about the work i'm doing and i'm earning something you know and I'm fostering that relationship so I had something to fall back on rather than pivot and go to kind of technology or healthcare which I could have done so I've got samples I've got contacts I just really really fucking hate it the the journalism module you ended up taking is like it's not my bag but hey it still came in handy at least once yeah yeah I'm not ambitious enough for this but I'll do it for fun they were telling us at uni that like journalism was was basically dying a horrible morbid death and they they they, there were some people that were very including like faculty that were not complimentary about the profession and they basically basically just saying it wasn't worth it anymore it's interesting that you say that because i posted something on linkedin this week about i was on a chemistry call with a new client kind of pitching for work and the client works with a lot of journalists for a publication that they run as part of their brand and when I pitched them uh, when I gave them an estimate of cost of how much it would take me to write a 1,000 1,500 word blog post they basically shit themselves and were like what are you talking about a journalist will do 1,500 words for 75 pounds and I was like yeah but it's not the same as copywriting and when i posted it on linkedin everyone was like those poor journalists i you know i know all about this it's you know it's equally as skilled as a profession and you get to to put it into perspective if i was writing a thousand words as a copywriter i earn about 400 pounds depending on what what the job is and who the client is if i'm writing a thousand words as a journalist i earn 75 pounds how can anyone make a living? And it's technical stuff, you know? It's a very specific skill set, but it's just not valued in its own industry. It's shocking. I don't understand it. That was where where the idea of charging by the word came from, of yeah, journalism. Yeah. And I have to believe that at some point in the past, that was probably clearly like a much better deal than it is now, because yeah, I agree. I've seen some of the costs on offered for journalism content, and it's 
it's really low and nobody can live off that kind of money. Like it's, or what you're writing is total crap. Yeah, exactly. I think if you're in-house with a, with a publication, it's probably very different, but as a freelancer, you certainly can't make a good wage. Not unless you've got a really keen eye for a story. Because for me, the one of the longest parts is to find an idea then go out and have a look and make sure no one else has had that idea and written about it then look on the publications website and check that they haven't ever written anything about it then you start to kind of flesh out all right what would the structure be how would this go like what's the hook how am I going to pitch and that in and of itself take fucking ages for me so I think if you had that skill and you could just kind of snatch something out of the air and be like, I've got this idea, do you want it? And you can turn a post around really quickly and really like make it watertight and cover all your bases. And I guess you could make a living, but I, I don't think it'd be good. I guess starting work in like journalism as it related to like fashion and music has got you on some pretty interesting projects. Mostly music. And the, the stuff that I pitch is all stuff that I'm naturally interested in but the things that they bring me that they want me to take care of on their behalf those are the things that tend to be quite interesting i had a publication ask me to interview the head of costume for kiss and she was telling me all about how she has to sew rhinestones on every morning and the platform boots and how much each of them weigh how the armor is made of this and it goes on in certain you know in a certain arrangement and then at the end of the night they have to hose it down in a bathtub and the different venues that they go to and how she has to find you know a shower room facility to hose the blood off of because uh, Gene Simmons does this thing where he kind of vomits blood as his stage trick and he wears like like demonic armor and it just gets drenched and she, it's her responsibility obviously to kind of tidy that up. Sometimes she has to like run on stage with a safety pin and fix somebody's cape or somebody's, you know, whatever. It was so interesting. And then she, um, I was asking her about the audience and she said that sometimes little kids come wearing the costumes that she's helped to kind of put together. And she said, oh my God, you know, the feeling of that. So that was a really interesting example of the, the kind of stuff that I, uh, crazy stories. And of course there was the trans Satanist anarchist who ran for the position of county sheriff in New Hampshire. And I interviewed her and she got in by using the Republican ballot because no one was using it. It was just left because I think the candidate dropped out. And she said that she got loads of votes because people didn't even bother to look at who she was or what her policies were. They just saw it was Republican and, and checked the box. And so she managed to get quite far. I don't think she won it in the end. Yeah, this was last year. I don't think she managed to, to win the position of sheriff, but that she was so clever and so articulate, more so than some of the high level executives that I've interviewed for other posts. She was just incredible. I expected her, I half expected her to kind of be a gimmick and kind of be like, oh, I'm crazy. Look at me doing this for publicity, for whatever. But she really gave a shit and she had really watertight plans for what she was going to do when she got in office. And as a victim of hate crimes for being trans and for being a Satanist, she was kind of really passionate about protecting people and oh my god I just came off that call like mildly in love I was just like I want you to get this so bad that's amazing we are going to take a short break we'll be back in a moment 
and we're back. Hello. What are you drinking, Andrew? Old Jamaica ginger beer. It's a little early in the day for me to be drinking something alcoholic, but... No, it's lunchtime. It's a lunchtime beer you could have had. I, I suppose. There's enough British in you that you can have a pint with lunch and feel like it's okay. Yeah, but yeah, I've been on a bit of a ginger beer bend this summer. It was just the grocery store down the street from where I live started selling old Jamaica. And they, that's like the, the Canadian equivalent of Tesco. That's basically stocked with what I can only imagine were like non-Western ingredients that happen to get left in the delivery truck. And they're like, sure, we'll sell it. So you never really know what you're going to find <laughs> in this section of the store. It, it can vary, but the only thing I think that you can find there consistently is that's where you go to get the packaged ramen noodles. Yeah. And that's about the only thing that you'll get there consistently. Everything else, who knows what you might find. But very recently, I want to say about a month back, they must have gotten this big box or crate of old Jamaica ginger beer. And I saw it and I thought, I'll give that a go. So wait, that's not just, that's not, you can't get that everywhere in Canada. I don't think so. Because it's fucking everywhere here in the UK and I just assumed it would be everywhere. I've certainly never seen it in another grocery store or anywhere else. Hmm. So this, so you're telling me Old Jamaica is a popular ginger beer brand in the UK? Yeah, well, you know, we're ex-empire aren't we we've got loads of jamaican people living here loads of people from the caribbean so my local sainsbury's is absolutely full of food from that region and uh well just food from everywhere as well yeah so it's quite popular all right old jamaica if you're hearing this and you want to sponsor a podcast send me an email are we actually jamaican though or is it just a name to to kind of harken back to the day Yes, Baltimore for PC Jamaica Limited, Spanish Town Road, Kingston. Kingston, Jamaica though, not Kingston, UK. Okay. No, yeah, Kingston, Jamaica, and not Kingston, Ontario, Canada either. Oh God, how many Kingstons are there? Christ. I think there's a few. You should make it. It's easy to make it at home. It's not carbonated, but it will definitely blow your head off. Yeah, actually one of my best friends had mentioned like a week earlier that he was making his own ginger beer. And I saw it in the store and said, I don't actually remember what ginger beer was like because I vaguely remember having it years and years ago. You discovered it and now that you're all about that. Yeah. Well, good. At least it's not cocaine. There's worse things to discover and become addicted to. Yeah, that, that might have to wait till after lockdown. Yeah. Uh, so ginger beer, old Jamaica. So I I'm, guess I'm, one of the things that I think that a lot of people listening to this podcast will know you for is your YouTube channel. You're probably one of, maybe the, I think you might be one of the only copywriters I know that actually does YouTube. No, there's so many. There's so many. I don't think not that many in the UK because one of the comments I get most is, oh, it's so nice to see someone from the UK talking about copywriting because it's mostly Americans. Um, I hadn't really thought about it before, but most of my viewers are American. They've got loads of their own YouTubers. Most of, the, if I'm honest, most of the copywriters I know currently are either Canadian or British. Well, you know, we're the best ones, aren't we? Canadian and British. Uh, I'm trying not to get too political on this podcast. Brothers from other mothers. You have a, we call it your hit YouTube channel. That would be being very generous. And if it remember correctly, it's called uh, Kiss My A's. 
Yeah. Do you know what? When I thought that title up, what, four years ago, I really thought it was one of the first things I came up with. I thought I was so fucking clever. And now I'm too lazy to think of something else. It's a Q&A channel for people that are copywriting or thinking about going into freelance copywriting. I was like, well, you know, I'm giving answers. So A's, kiss my A's, I don't know. Yeah, it started out as being mostly for clients so I could demonstrate my skill and people that weren't good at writing or didn't know kind of the fundamentals of structure or like rhetoric or whatever. It was my idea that they would watch these quick videos and learn about the rule of three or things like that. Then I made, I think, one or two that were aimed at copywriters and freelancers and it just kind of exploded and so i started making more and more and those are the ones that got traction and took off so i was like okay well my viewership is obviously other freelancers not businesses at all so yeah, i just pivoted and just became like the older sister of everyone that is trying to go freelance i recently last week two weeks ago i went to a um a meetup for copywriters uh, copywriters unite and i always go to the london one when i can for the last i don't know three years four years i've been going and it was quite a small crowd because obviously pandemic um, and i just spent the whole time there coaching new freelancers on what they need to do <laughs> giving out lists of resources all right you need to go away you need to look at this you need to look at that this is where you go for your rates figure out your portfolio here figure out your website here then to pitch you need to go here here and here learn all about this and then the next step oh my god i should have just said like go to the channel there's a video on each single thing i've talked about just watch it i don't want to say it again gave out away so much advice i don't even know if people take me seriously i'm not bossy by nature but i just don't like to see people struggle when i could help or could try to help i don't know i think that i think it's also i think difficult for a lot of new people because there really wasn't like freelancing was not ever something i don't know about you but it wasn't something that was ever taught in school mm. like my own education was very much geared toward the expectation that you were going to be someone's employee, that you were going yeah. to do the job. Like the the only people that I've ever met that kind of started with the I'm going to do this myself mentality were business majors. But that tends to be much more centered around actually building the business rather than developing a craft and, and how to like manage yourself in that environment. It, it also, it's kind of a lawless land really you learn how to be freelance from other freelancers, really. We make the mistakes and then we teach other copywriters, I say, I keep saying copywriters, freelancers, um, about the mistakes we've made and hacks or systems that we've introduced to get around them. And then those kind of become the benchmarks that everybody else starts to use. And I think it's kind of a community that helps its members build their businesses. I don't, I don't think that, I mean, I guess you you can go to classes or seminars to learn about freelancing, but in my experience, the best advice I've ever had has always been from other freelancers in the community. Mm -hmm. So it's something that you learn just by 
doing it and making those mistakes. Because someone can tell you all day long, put your rates up, or you never make a good living, put your rates up, and like, oh, I can't. And then one day you do it, and like, oh, actually it is easy, and people do pay that money. I'm a moron. The, the communities were, it makes sense, because like, that was how I, I met you. Yeah. I was getting up way really, really early to participate in a, in a UK-oriented Twitter conversation about content and copywriting. <laughs> Hashtag Content Club UK. Oh yeah, you gotta you gotta rep Content Club UK. Yeah, there's just so many great people there, and I feel like they're very much of that same mindset of just they're there to like help and sort of offer the best advice that they can by making mistakes mm. and figuring out what works and what doesn't. It's one of the greatest lessons you learn as a as a freelancer is that other freelancers are not your competition they are your best business leads and cheerleaders and business advice coaches and great friends they're your colleagues really they're not there to steal work from under your nose that was something that isn't really apparent a lot of business people and people that weren't specifically doing this kind of work were giving advice of like, oh, you've got to be super competitive because that's the the attitude and the message that's sent when you're sort of on the outside looking in. And I think it, I think it gets that way for certain kinds of businesses, but I, I feel comfortable saying that the most success probably make it do an entire podcast recording just upon niching, but like finding finding your niche, finding the thing that you do, that you really enjoy, that you're good at, and that people are really happy with. Yeah. And then focus on that. And also embracing what you uniquely bring to the table, the way you work as only you can, right? Because ultimately there are going to be dozens of fashion copywriters, but the one that they hire is going to be the one that fits with their company culture. So if you're unabashedly yourself you become the one that they choose and so each of us and our individual voices and individual branding and look and feel and approach is part of how we differentiate ourselves it's the usp really i think that's a really good way of putting it yeah when you're not doing copywriting what other things do you like to uh, spend your time I've got so many hobbies and the annoying thing is is that most of them are quite expensive so I can't do them as often as I'd like to. So I do horse riding. I've done horse riding for many many years. I have started to get in the last couple of years more into stunt riding because where I live it's kind of in the centre of lots of different film studios. I live right by Shepparton and Pinewood and the BBC, Ealing. I, I live within Kind of 20 minutes half an hour of all the studios so they send all of their stunt riders to my riding school i say mine you know i don't teach there or anything it's just where i go to do their qualifications and a lot of the teachers at the school actually are stunt riders in films so it's just really fun to get to you know just for i'm not getting a qualification or anything i just want to learn to ride with a warhammer or ride standing up in your stirrups and canter standing up and learning how to mount without a saddle from the ground or as the horse is moving past you if you can jump up onto the horse or if you can fall from the horse safely or fall with the horse there's loads of stuff like that cantering without a saddle and jumping without a saddle it just makes it a bit more because i'm past the point where i'm happy to learn dressage you learn that stuff to kind of get the fundamentals but really i, I find that that's bullshit it's not useful I just like to do 
fun things because you might one day need to ride with a weapon. It is useful, it's a good skill to know. Can you shoot a bow and arrow from the back of a moving horse? Well, you might need that when the zombie apocalypse comes. It's a skill worth learning. It's a good break from, from a day spent typing away at a computer. Yeah, for sure. And then after you've been riding for a day, you're kind of crippled and you have to sit down at the, at the desk. I also play drums. Uh, I am a drummer and I do taxidermy as well, off and on. Taxidermy? I've got a head on the shelf behind me, do you want to see? Sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get get a photo of it later for the recording. How do you like that? Maybe I have seen that before. Yeah, I think you have. Because you're the only person that correctly identified the animal. It's a jackalope, isn't it? It is a jackalope, yes. But that's really cool. Lots of great things, and I like the fact that like so much time that you're not spending working is time doing something very tactile things. Is my cat picking up on the mic? Yes. This one in particular, which is ironic because this is the unfriendly shy cat. Right. Um, she thinks that she's alone in the room with me. My other cat, Isabeau, she is the slutty nightmare that yells and is just in everyone's faces. But this one, yeah. Then. to join us for this for this podcast she's got nothing of value to say i can guarantee that she's reaching up to tap me on the arm that's her favorite thing to do when i'm working at my desk she gets on her back legs reaches up and just taps me mom mummy mummy mum mum that's what's going on it's because it's just gone past dinner time she wants to make sure that i'm still physically able to feed her when the time comes i get the same problem with them when i'm in the shower or the toilet they're like petrified because the primary caregiver has gone out of sight temporarily and they need to make sure that they they have what they need to survive. They're like, get her out of there, she's trapped inside. One thing I always ask everyone at the end is, what's next? It's sort of like where you'd like to go and what you'd like to be doing. Well, oh God, sorry, the cat. The cat is on the deck. Well, I was in Bergen in Norway when the pandemic happened and I had landed only hours prior to the whole country going into lockdown. So my husband and I had to essentially flee Norway after only 24 hours to come back here to be in quarantine, for then the UK to hit quarantine only, you know, a week later. So it might be nice to go back to Norway and finish, finish Norway. Were you there just on holiday? Yeah, uh, for my husband's birthday. He's a big fan of black metal. So we were kind of on like a Norwegian black metal pilgrimage for his birthday, which is pretty, it's pretty fun. We went to the church that got burned down and uh, the place where someone was murdered, the place where someone was uh, prosecuted for crimes. And then we went to an art gallery that's owned by Gal of Gorgoroth fame. And he was there and he gave us red wine and chatted with us and showed us his paintings. It was a pretty wild time. So yeah, we'll go back there, get that done. Planning to move house soon. That would be nice to finish that. Yes, because you're you're in you're London based at the moment, right? Yes, I am, yes. Unfortunately so. Unfortunately so? Yeah, it's a very um specific mindset and you can always tell when someone's a tourist because they usually eat in the way. And uh, Londoners are not kind to people that bumble or get in the way or don't know the system. Just, it's kind of unfair. I always feel bad for them, but at the same time, I'm secretly one of those Londoners that's like, just get out of the way. This is rush hour. Like, we're all going from A to B very aggressively, not looking at anyone else, not talking to anyone else. 
it's not you know it's not the done thing that part is is right i remember morning commutes going into london traveling in and out of out of the train station it is very much you're there on a mission you do not have time to dawdle yeah and anyone that's in the way you're like yeah it's very evident when people are lost or standing in the way and aren't just aware yeah. Well, when they're there to just enjoy the experience, there's no time for that in London. Nobody's in London to enjoy the experience of being in London. They're always on their way to somewhere else, right? Exactly. Or they're trying to be alone and the kind of dawdling person is kind of encroaching on that. Well, anyways, thank you very much for joining me today, Emma. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you all very much for listening. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Also, you can follow me on social media, Twitter at A-G-M-O-N-R-O, and search Andrew Monroe on LinkedIn. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye.